Thank you for joining us here on the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You can hear these shows like the Montpelier Happy Hour and other great shows on WVEW streaming on the web at WVEW.org. I am your host, Olga Peters, and we have on the show today regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, as well as executive director of the Wyndham Regional Commission, Chris Campany. And if you're just joining us, we are talking about public-private spaces. So, Emily, mm. right before the break, you said you wanted to shift the conversation. I want to talk about land use more broadly and private ownership of land, um, how current use really lowers the cost for people of private land ownership and yet still gives them a right to um, police that land themselves. So I've seen a trend here as our communities have become more diverse, um, people know each other less, there's less sort of common understandings amongst neighbors that people are putting up more trespass signs, more no trespass signs mm -hmm. on their land. Um, and so our forests become more broken up. People who for generations might have been using that land for whatever reason don't have access to it. We don't have thoroughfares the same way. Children don't, you know, run free the way we hope they will in bucolic Vermont. Um, and just like really talking more about the implications of that. Because I think if I remember correctly, a concept we might want to just touch on. And I think I heard this from you, Chris, but I might be wrong. In New England in general, Vermont specifically, don't we have a concept that basically land is open to everyone unless it is specifically marked no trespass? That's my understanding. Now, as that's my as understanding. Lawmaker, that's, yeah. my, that's my understanding. Emily, mm -hmm. you may that's also my understanding, but I don't really know anything Which about Which is this stuff. why it's so, as Emily is pointing out, it's such a key uh, cultural shift to have more and more of these no trespass signs going up. But if you come here from another place, and so I grew up in southwestern Virginia, and one of the reasons why state parks and national forests were, all, were so important was because the assumption is unless you have a signed permission to access land, you're only going on public land. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and generally speaking, you didn't want to go on to land where you're, where you're not supposed to trespass. And I, th I think that's the condition in most of the country beyond... Uh, actually, I don't know much about the rest of New England, but you know, beyond Vermont, it's, it was it was kind of stunning to me to realize uh what the ethic was here and, and how incredible that was and i recognize that and i've seen it just in my nine years here more signs going up but um, my partner's from west texas and he has often was struck and i see him being much more nervous about the way we'll walk on someone's land than i am yeah and that's one of the things you know and and, and this may even may even be helpful for as we have new vermonters uh coming here uh one of the things that i that that we're having a discussion with, with within the commission and uh our our uh gis planner jeff nugent's leading an effort to really talk about about wayfinding and signage because mm -hmm. i think it would help us both you know locally more to just what is wayfinding that sounds like a very wayfinding, basically term. you you have a sense about what where you are and where you're going oh uh, <laughs> and, and by and by doing that you just feel more comfortable in the space yeah so and it can be subtle visual cues like right it's the it's the blue blaze on the tree or the white blaze like right when you see one of those you go oh thank god i'm mm -hmm. not lost. i'm on i'm on a path <laughs> yes <laughs> it will go somewhere <laughs> and you know just right if you're driving down the highway do you see the brown sign with the white or yellow lettering you're like oh 
it just immediately tricked because of the work that was done like during by the CCC and WPA in the thirties, you know, the st- kind of standard signage, you were like, mm-hmm. Oh, that's public space. Um, and I think we probably need to do more of that, not only for people who are visiting, but also for ourselves, just so folk, uh, on that publicly available land or privately available land that people are trying to encourage use of, um, if we had better signage that basically says you're welcome here, um, I think that would be helpful. Because do we really feel that way though? I mean, that's sort of the funny thing. So we might talk that way, but when I go down to my swimming spot this summer, all summer I was like, "Did this get in some book? This is terrible. Why are all these people here? I want them to go away, right?" But that's the, even though I, I spend all my time talking about welcoming. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's a whole other issue. And actually, the swimming hole issue is. is uh, I know talking to our counterparts in Massachusetts, some places are just getting loved and swim, swim in to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know where I used to live in Orange County, New York, and Ulster County, New York. There's issues now with litter that previously maybe hadn't been, mm-hmm. maybe either because of intensity of use or just different approaches. Uh, you know, folk aren't seeing a garbage can handy. Mm-hmm. What do I do with the trash? Well, I don't want to take it home. I'll leave it here. Um, so, yeah, there are all kinds of... Uh, there are all kinds of issues related to you know the public use of public space especially when you're talking about the outdoors but i think it's important for us as as vermonters to not necessarily assume that uh the whole world looks at where we live here uh and the way we exist here uh that everybody should feel familiar with that because there Mm -hmm. may be other people uh again whether it's your gender identity race or ethnicity religious belief any any number of different factors may may uh, you may have different life experiences, and mm-hmm. so not n- not having a clear indicator that you're that you have right of access or you're welcome to a space, you may be afraid to enter that because the risks are way higher. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, I mean, I know for me, if I'm walking onto someone's private land and someone sees me, I feel like it's similar to you know getting pulled over for a speeding ticket. I have some pretty good negotiation assets at my fingertips. Whereas I think for some other people, they have not had the life experience of being able to get out of tight situations with uh, three smiles and a thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I'm the most privileged creature on the planet, a white heterosexual Protestant male. Um, and, you know, I, sh- I can't look at a space. Uh, I can't make the same assumptions that other people can as far as how comfortable they might feel. Because generally speaking, wherever I go, I feel comfortable. Um, and the vast majority of people in the world don't feel that way. And mm-hmm. so that's why it's so important to bring people into the conversations about what makes you feel comfortable and don't just assume, well, you should feel comfortable. Right. Um, you know, there's no law against it or whatever. And it's like, well, no, we need to be accommodating of other views and positions and life experiences. Cause I've never felt an existential, existential threat just by virtue of the color of my skin or my, gender identity or anything else Mm -hmm. so it's an interesting so i think what we're talking about is making making the welcome mat more explicit in certain spaces Mm -hmm. that are meant to be used by the full public and what we tend to do here by being implicit about that because it feels like everything is understood is we exclude certain people from access from use from debate and i you know we've talked about this in the past about robert's rules of order becomes this sort of implicit exclusionary principle because people don't feel like they have a right to ask questions about how it works so in this context um, i think bathrooms are another really interesting concept so places that someone can use a bathroom when they are downtown and just need to pee is sort of this strangely understood thing people have a you know everyone has their own little map of those bathrooms but places where we have a sign that you know the public 
is welcome to use this bathroom are few and far between mm-hmm. and limited to folks who um, have a certain way of presenting themselves in the world. Well, and I think many places, too, are also limited by, you know, if you're in a certain coffee shop, did you buy something? Mm-hmm. So, again, it's also an economic limitation in some cases as well. And my understanding is that economic limitation is used as a way of saying yes or no to people. Mm-hmm. It's not actually about whether or not you spent money. It's a way of screening people. And I think it's really interesting that it's used as a way of screening people because what I hear from folks, which is very reasonable, is we let everyone use it and the impact became too much. Mm, but if everywhere in town is letting everyone use their bathrooms, then the impact would be dispersed throughout the community. But when you just have one or two sort of, you know, quote unquote, good community members, then the impact falls more heavily on those places. I think that, but there's also, I think the challenge for, again, communities just to make a place habitable for its own residents and visitors you know to what extent should we be looking at creating public facilities i think we yeah. use, when I, it just seems to me that growing up and this may anecdotally this this may be absolutely incorrect but it feels like there just used to be more public restrooms available in public spaces mm-hmm. not necessarily porta johnny's but you know even the small this facility now i know we've got here in the, in New England, we've got more weatherization issues and other you know other things. But where I grew up in Southwest Virginia, it was mountains and you know fairly uh, cold climate too. You, we had to protect against the cold. But um, it just seems like, and especially like with technologies, Rich Earth Institute, which does the, which is doing great work looking at um, you know their urine diversion systems mm-hmm. and all. You can actually do, do develop very nice modern uh composting systems urine diversion systems other things that are not as water dependent mm-hmm. um and ways for people to take care of what they need to do um it seems like we could use those technologies to create more public restrooms because right n- now even like uh you see the ubiquitous porta potty outside of the country market or something mm-hmm. out in the, in the rural areas i was and up in <laughs> i was up in newport last winter the newport area um and needed to use a bathroom and stopped at a very large gas station slash country store situation, sort of the only one in town. It was the Coventry exit. Um, And I am sure that people who live in Coventry are allowed to use the bathroom inside that gas station, but (laughs) I was not. And I was pointed to the porta potty outside, which did not have a roof on it. And it was the middle of the winter. So it wasn't even just that I was cold, which is, you know, a fine enough thing. But it was that there was, in fact, snow inside the porta potty <laughs> and all over the toilet. You had to shovel out. I had to shovel body. out the porta potty to use it. And that is your memory of Newport. It is actually my, it is one of the, <laughs> it is, in fact, my memory of Newport. And I'm, I'm sorry, because my, my committee chair, who I don't think listens to this, is from Coventry and I do think he's a very good man but I'm <laughs> well he might have a different opinion if he had to shovel out a, a porta potty indeed and so one thing so where I want to loop back to this um, which I have now purposely which I've strayed quite far from is we used to have these public bathrooms and part of it is because we had more explicitly public spaces and what I've seen in this community is as public funding becomes scarcer and scarcer, we use public-private partnerships as a way of funding spaces. And that's something that I've certainly, you know, even devoted a large section of my career to is brokering public-private partnerships. And I think they're very useful in certain contexts. But I want to make sure that public funding is used to maintain public mores. 
And I don't see that happening. I see that these spaces that are built with a combination of public and private funding are often private are often policed in a private way. For instance, the bathrooms are locked or only accessible to certain populations. I'm wondering what you think about that, Chris. I guess I haven't. Uh, so on the on the bathroom issue um, specifically, I don't have enough experience here. I've not I've not been involved in a public like park project or something like that mm -hmm. where bathrooms were even factored in. Um, well, that says something. <laughs> but well, but I, mean, I but to be clear, I mean most most of our projects, you know, we, we it's like through brownfields or something, and it's a smaller pocket park or something like that uh and sometimes associated with a not typically with a nonprofit mm -hmm. or some other entity right so um so i guess I could, it's hard for me to speak to it just because i haven't had the direct experience but but i would say yeah we, we need to um i do think we i mean i'm i'm it makes me want to go back and kind of look and see what the history has been of like publicly maintained parks and how they were maintained how they were funded who actually did the maintenance mm -hmm. where they marginalized people who were doing the maintenance um you know who who you know were they were they paid were they paid on a union uh, uh municipal worker salary or mm -hmm. were these people who that was uh you know some kind of subsistence pay that they got to do the jobs that nobody else wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I mean, I don't know the answer to that. It makes, but it, but it, it, it does make me curious about how we used to be, seem to be able to do things um, and seem to do them well, but maybe we, we also weren't seeing uh, what was really going on in mm -hmm. the main management and maintenance. And as you were saying, who really had right of access to those parks? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know about the racial history and class history uh, of a lot of our public spaces and, um, I think, you know, even now we're still um, have a lot of work to do to make sure that everybody feels welcome in those public spaces. And if it's if the people having the conversations are uh, folk who are coming from a position of strong privilege, then, it, you know, we're we're probably still not um, achieving the goal of making places more welcoming and um, doing what we need to do. Mm hmm. I want to circle back. We have just about five more minutes before we need to wrap up here. And, you know, what I'm hearing, some themes come up. I'm hearing the theme of who has access mm -hmm. um, and how kind of historically did some of these spaces evolve? Where's the funding come from? But also, uh, Emily, in, in earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the words intimacy a lot and you mentioned safety a lot and, and how... Uh, public spaces can actually require both mm -hmm. um, of people. And so how do we, and to me, those two things seem just so core to a healthy community that everyone feels um, safe, mm -hmm. that everyone has their, their kind of private uh, personal space, mm -hmm. but also that we have a level of intimacy, healthy intimacy for for the community as a whole. So as a lawmaker, what do you need to, to make some of those, those things possible and healthy? But Chris, as someone who plans these spaces, what do you need? Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, I'm lost in a little tailspin about consent and intimacy and what that means for a public space that I don't think we can talk about today, mm -hmm. um, but I'd like to at some point. In terms of legislation, I think it's really 
as um, funding mechanisms have devolved from the public directly spending from public government directly spending public dollars, I think it becomes harder and harder for the public to hold government accountable for how it spends its money. And so Interesting point. making sure um, as a legislator that when public money is spent, we've talked about this um, with regard to um, speech and open meeting laws and mm -hmm. um, media access, but as public funding is spent and public resources are put towards a project, how are we making sure that we are protecting public participation in that process? And how are we making sure that we are maintaining public accountability around who has a right to access and what implicitly and explicitly is happening there? And that we really are following that money and we're not just releasing it from state coffers and releasing ourselves from obligations simultaneously. It's really holding government much more accountability for it, much more accountable for its own spending. Mm -hmm. How about you, Chris? Meg, I'll go back to a lot of the communities we work with, um, whether they're working with us or often, you know, working with a consultant, if they're designing a space like doing bike pig scoping study or to actually developing a project, oftentimes, I mean, they'll go through a fairly robust public process but i think it's really incumbent on the community uh to work with those consultants to make sure that a broad spectrum of the community is participating and not just the folk who are typically involved mm -hmm. um, and that's not always easy to do especially in a more rural uh context and i think it's also a type of conversation that a lot of communities aren't necessarily used to having mm -hmm. um and uh so i think there's just still a lot of coaching that we need to do there uh, one other thing that but on the intimacy and all the public spaces i think one thing that I, we were talking about before we started recording was uh generally speaking with a public space you need you, what you really want are views in and views out of a space so you can even have an intimate space uh where you can like it we'll even use plenty park again or plenty park uh, apologies <laughs> for whichever is uh hopefully one of those pronunciations is correct but anyway uh, but, you know, like, again, there's one area where you can pull yourself back from the space and have a more in, in, in that small space and have a more intimate experience with it. And then you, there are other areas closer to the street where less intimate space. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to have those views in, in and out because no matter who you are, it just it's not that you're you're, you're not creating privacy. It's that you're creating you're, you're removing from the context opportunities for things to be done out of sight. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, that's where um, I think the research would show that, you know, when you have those uh, those places where people can be hiding and potentially accost or, you know, or, or it, I think just sometimes the presence of those darker spaces can kind of make people using the space feel uncomfortable, even if there's nothing going on there. Mm -hmm. um, we really cast a lot of assumptions into the dark corners. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and depending right, depending on who you are, those assumptions may be you know, and and that we seem as a culture now to just be spreading this virulent fear of others, whoever those others mm -hmm. may be. Um, so is it? Uh, yeah. So is it? Yeah. It, 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 you know, I think everybody's kind of bringing their own filter to that. Um, and but we just seem to be spreading i don't know i think some people are even kind of thriving on fear now i'm not trying to get political or 
uh, stray into that, but I just noticed just in, in relative to earlier in my career, 30 years ago to now, there just seems to be so much fear about everything and everybody mm-hmm. and that, and it, it even discourages the conversation about having public spaces or designing public spaces because of all the fears of what could happen in that public and, space. And, yeah. It ranges from not only like who might use it, you know, it, we even, there's even this issue with around affordable housing, right? Mm-hmm. If we build affordable housing, workforce housing, people don't necessarily think of their kids, their neighbor's kids, kids they knew in high school, you know, uh, nurses, teachers, other people needing that housing. Sometimes the mind immediately goes to, well, if we build affordable housing, people might live there and there may be people we don't know. Um, but even the fear of, Oh my God, if we build this public space, we have to maintain it. Will we ever be able to afford it? Or what if somebody's trips and falls, what are going to be the liability concerns? It just seems like we've become such a fearful society that's actually precluded us from doing things that we need to do to actually bring people more together. So maybe there'll be less fear. Interesting. That seems like a wrap on this conversation. That is a wrap. Boy, people, I hope you you take what Chris just said away and and ponder that for a little while, because that's pretty powerful. Uh, Unfortunately, we are out of time for this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour, but Emily and I will be back next week, and I believe we will be talking about education funding. No. No. We're just going to have just you and I. Our lessons learned. Lessons learned. Ooh. Yes, we will be doing deep geek there. <laughs> As always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM or online at the Vermontitude SoundCloud page and the Vermontitude Facebook page. Emily, if people have questions for you, how do they get in contact? EmilyKornheiser.org, EmilyKornheiser at Gmail, Emily Kornheiser on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or feel free to stop me on the street. <laughs> I am easiest to find on the Vermontitude SoundCloud or Facebook pages. And uh, Chris, the Wyndham Regional Commission has a lot of really great community-wide kind of broad spectrum reports on its website. Remind people where they can find sure, those. www.wyndhamregional.org. So if you want to learn more about things like the labor shed and uh, the economic overview of Wyndham County, if you if you do like doing geek, deep geek, then I highly suggest you head on over to the Wyndham Regional Commission's website. Emily, thank you. Chris, thank you. <laughs>